Earlier this month, uh, I became aware of an article, I read an article about an event that had taken place in, in Nashville, which I believe is in Tennessee, in the States. And uh, this event, it was a live auction uh, that was taking place at uh, what was called the JDRF Promise Gala. And the purpose of the gala was to raise awareness and to raise funds looking for uh, how to care for, uh, how, um, looking for progress really in terms of treatments for, for type 1 diabetes. So that was what the gala was being held for. And it got to the, the last item of the evening. So it's a live auction, people bidding on these items. It was the last item and it was a painting. And the painting was called Dreams of the Future. And it was a painting that had been inspired by 10 youth ambassadors, all of them who had been impacted in some way by type 1 diabetes. And what they'd done in this piece of work was they'd written down what their hopes for the future were going to be, what they would like to be doing, uh, if, you know, if they, if, what, what their dreams would be for themselves. So this was the last item that had gone up uh, for sale. So really the finale of this promised gala and the bidding starts. And it goes quite quickly and it's going up in fairly big steps. Uh, and, and what becomes apparent fairly quickly is that there's this one man who, who just wasn't putting his bidding card down at any point. He was just sat there with his card in his hand, just holding it up as if to say, do you know what, whatever is going on, I'm just going to keep this up because I'm going to keep bidding. I'm going to keep bidding, however much it goes up. And this went on for some time and then people realise who it is. And this man who's just sat there with his bidding card up, he's a father of one of the girls who had contributed to the, to the, to the painting. She's, uh, I believe she's 11 years old, his daughter's 11 years old, she's got type 1 diabetes. Uh, and she was up on the stage with the rest of the ambassadors standing by the picture. That they, had, that they had created and that they had inspired. And this father was just there holding up his card. You could just sense he wanted this picture. He wanted to win that auction. And someone described it when they realised who it was. They described his face as having a look of utter determination and love. There was nothing, it seemed, that was going to stop him in his bidding. And then it gets to a point that the bidding's still going on. He's still there holding his card up. No matter how high it's going, he's got his card up there. And then it gets to a point where he stands up, still holding the card in the air, and he stands up and he walks to the front uh, and gets up on the stage where the ambassadors are and he just takes hold of his daughter. Is someone cutting onions in here? Because this is getting to me. Uh, and he just takes hold of his daughter, all the while holding his card in the air. He's still bidding. He's like, whatever it costs, whatever it takes, I'm getting this picture just with this look of utter determination and love on his face. The only time he put his card down was when he'd been told that he'd won it. And he'd got that piece of art, the dreams of the future. Such was his determination and love for his daughter. He, there was no way, no way that he was ever going to be outbid. Whatever it cost, he was going to secure that item. He was going to win. And he would pay whatever it took. You could tell. I've seen that there's a video of it as well. If you fancy a little cry, watch it. It is really good. Very, very powerful. But you could tell. didn't matter. He would have paid whatever it took. There was no way that he was putting his card down. And it made me think about Jesus. It made me think about the way that he feels about you and about me. It makes me think about the determination and love that he had that sent him to the cross for us what we've been singing about in our time of worship already what we've been celebrating what Jesus has done for us it's like Jesus 
on the way to the cross was just holding this card up saying, you know what, whatever it takes, whatever it costs, I'm going to keep going until I've secured it. And that painting that this guy won, it says dreams for the future. But what Jesus secures for us is, is a future that is secure, that is certain, and that is eternal. And Hebrews 12 talks about Jesus like this in terms of what it took for him to go to the cross, what that determination, what that love looked like. It says that we are to look to Jesus who's the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who kind of, he, he's the creator of it. He's the one who brought it into being. But not only is he the one who creates it and brings it into being, he's the one that sees it through to completion as well and sustains it. So it says that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand at the throne of God. It was for the joy that was set before him that he was so determined, that look of determination and love that said, you know what, whatever it costs, even death on a cross, whatever that means for me, I'm going to pay that because of the joy that was set before him. Do you know what, you are part of that joy. To have you secured, to have you brought into the family. That's what Jesus saw. That's what took him to the cross and in Hebrews 12 it speaks uh, um, just a little bit before it says uh, that, um, that we're to lay aside every weight and sin which, sin which clings so closely and that we're to run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith so Jesus is our example of what it means to endure and to press on because the life that he's called us to it is, it is a race of endurance and there will be struggles and there will be tests along the way, but we look to Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter of, uh, to the Philippians that we're working our way through this series, he was someone who, who lived an endurance kind of a life. When you read what his life was like, you're like, this is a guy that's been through it. He understands what it is to endure. And he has that mindset of, I'm going to keep pressing on because I know God's called me to something. And Paul was a guy that you can just tell through the way that he writes and the things that he speaks. He had his eyes fixed on Jesus. He had his eyes fixed on Jesus. And in, the same, in a similar sort of way, when it says that Jesus, uh, it was for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For Paul, he was a guy who's like, Do you know what, for the joy that I have and for the joy that is awaiting me, I'm going to keep looking, looking to Jesus. Because he's the one who's secured my future. He's the one who endured and suffered in my place to pay the price that I could not pay. He's done that. And the letter to the Philippians, it's a letter in which the sense of joy that kind of comes from the author of the letter, it's inescapable. Philippians is a fairly short book in the Bible. If you were to, to quickly have a flick through, it's, it's four short chapters, but the, word joy, the words joy and rejoice appear at least a dozen times. So it's very clearly something that's just coming out of Paul and in his writings. Which is even more remarkable when we remember in what's been, we've, we've kind of, has come up the last couple of weeks when we're looking at it. Paul's writing this when he's in prison. He's in a situation where uh, he's been in prison, in prison for quite a while and his chances of getting released, you know, they're getting slimmer with every passing day. And you might think actually with that situation going on, the joy that Paul has, you might think actually... Is that going to lessen as time goes on? But it actually seems his joy is increasing all the more. Even while in prison, Phil Moore is a, a pastor from, of a New Frontiers church 
in London, Everyday Church in London, and he has written a commentary on the book of Philippians. And he says that Paul uses the words joy or rejoice with such frequency because he is more aware of who he is in Jesus than in all of the disappointments along the way. Isn't that wonderful? He's more aware of who he is in Jesus than all the disappointments he faces along the way. And that's where his joy is coming from. Which is why he's in prison, but he's writing a letter that's full, full of joy. Full of calls for us to rejoice. And he goes on to say that the gospel doesn't just make us free on the inside. It doesn't just make us new on the inside and strong on the inside. It makes us joyful on the inside too. It's what the gospel does for us. So we're going to be carrying on in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be picking up from where Paul left off last week from verse 27. So if you want to find your way there. But it's helpful for us to think about what's come before this, just to refresh our minds. So we're thinking about the context we're in. And what we've had in the verses uh, leading up to this, we've had the introduction to the letter. It's Paul's, pr- uh, really, it's Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for the church in Philippi. And he's laying out some of the reasons why he's able to remember them and pray for them with joy. That's what Mike was sharing. Do you remember, if you were here, Mike was talking about the anchors that Paul has, which means that he can be joyful and rejoicing in the church and to pray with joy. And then last week, uh, we, we thought about and looked at Paul's assurance to the church that although he's in prison, God has actually used his circumstances. God has used his sufferings to actually advance the gospel. And for Paul, the most important thing to him, what mattered more to him than absolutely anything else was that Jesus be made known. Whatever that meant for him, whatever that cost for him, The most important thing was that Jesus was magnified and glorified and people uh, heard about him. But now, in these verses that we're going to be looking at today, we've kind of got a change of focus because Paul shifts the attention away from himself uh, and he puts the attention onto the believers in Philippi. It's like the the introduction where he's talking about what he's gone through and what he's experienced and what he's thinking. It's it's like he's holding himself up as an example to to the Philippians to say, look at me, look at what I've done. Let me explain why this is the case. So he's holding himself up as an example. And then in these verses, he turns, he's saying, okay, church, in light of that, this is how you're meant to be. This is what I'm encouraging you and urging you to be like. Because through his writing, what he wants is he wants to encourage the Philippians that they're to live their lives first and foremost as citizens of heaven with a growing commitment in service to God, but also in service to one another. And we'll see that as we progress through and we continue through the letter. So let's pick up from verse 27. We've got just four chapters, four chapters, four verses, not four chapters, four verses that we're looking at today. So from verse 27, remember Paul's shifting that attention from himself now onto the church. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflicts that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This morning, my plan for the rest of the time that I'm going to be speaking this morning, we're, just, we're going to work our way through these verses. So hopefully, if you, if you kind of got the verses in front of you, I hope you to keep track of where I'm going. We're going to work through those four verses together. But uh, my title for, the, for this morning, if you're someone that takes notes and likes to have, have a title, my title is this, it's Citizens Part 1. In fact, we've got a Citizens Part 1 implies that later in the series there will be a Citizens Part 
<laughs> Not three. Well, Lou, you're with it. Thank you. So there's going to be a citizens part two as well. But maybe in terms of what we've just read, it's not immediate, necessarily immediately clear where this kind of thought or this thinking about citizens and citizenship has come from. It's not a word that has appeared anywhere. But if we look at verse 27 where we, where we started, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. When that's translated literally, it means, it means this. It means behave as citizens in a manner which is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Behave as citizens in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. In week one, when Mike uh, very helpfully set the context of the series, talking about the church in Philippi, how it came to be, what the city itself was like, and, and what life, in, in a sense, would have been like for the people there. He, he said that Philippi, which was a city in Macedonia, was actually, it was a Roman colony. So it was under the rule of, of the Romans. So its citizens... So bearing in mind, they're living in Macedonia, but the citizens in Philippi, they were Roman citizens. They were in the Roman colony. They lived under Roman law. They had the same legal rights as those who were living in Italy. So in a sense, if we want to look at it like this, Philippi was a, li a little piece of Rome in a foreign land. So this concept of citizenship, it was something that the Philippians clearly understood. So when Paul's talking about behaving as citizens, they would have got what he was talking about. And actually, their, their Roman citizenship wasn't something that was a burden to them. It wasn't really something that was a problem to them. The city of Philippi prided themselves on being a Roman colony. It was something that they were proud of. They saw it as something that was good. And so this is the concept at the start here that Paul takes hold of. Chapter 3, he says, Paul says, and we'll come to this in Citizens Part 2, where this comes in. So Paul actually says that for followers of Jesus, their citizenship is in heaven. It's a reminder of them. Actually, yes, you are a, a, a Roman colony in Macedonia, but actually you are citizens of heaven. That's where your citizenship lies. So when Paul instructs the church to behave as citizens, or in a, behave as citizens in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, he's saying this, live as heavenly citizens in Philippi. You are to live first and foremost as heavenly citizens in Philippi. So live as citizens of heaven where Jesus is king. Where you live under his rule. Where you live under his reign. Because The reason why is because this is your identity now. Before you are a Philippian. Before you are a Roman citizen. Now because of who Jesus has made you. First and foremost above all else. You are a son. You are a daughter of God. Your identity is not in where you live. But it's in who you live for. And who you've been won by. So live with Jesus as your king. With, under his rule and his reign. Because that's your identity. And his call for us is the same. It's church. Live as heavenly citizens. In Faversham, live as heavenly citizens in the towns and villages in which you live. We're not to be kept hidden away, just kind of muddling through quietly, just keeping ourselves to ourselves. No, we're to live as citizens of heaven for everyone to see. We're called to be different from the regions around. Philippi was different to the regions around because of their status as Roman citizens. As believers, as followers of Jesus, we're to be different 
to the world that is around us because our citizenship, our identity is rooted in Jesus and not in the, the geography of where we live. So behave as citizens in a manner which is worthy of the gospel. So what does this look like? I don't just want to tell you that's what you're meant to do because you might be sitting there thinking, well, what does that, what does that actually look like? Somewhere I think that's helpful for us to start is Colossians chapter 3. Again, written by Paul. So we've got the same guy that's written the letter to the Philippians. This is a letter to the church, to the Colossians. We're going to read, it's actually 17 verses. So from chapter 3, verse 1. This is what it means for those whose identity is in Christ. This is how you should live. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry. On account of these the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Jew, uh, sorry, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint, complaint against another, forgiven each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That is a life. That's what a life that is worthy of the gospel looks like. Because now we're living as the people that Jesus has called us to be. Live in the way that Jesus calls us to. We're to live in a way that shows the infinite value of the gospel. This way of living, living worthy of the gospel, it's not a life that's lived in isolation. It's not to be lived out by ourselves. It's clear through that passage in Colossians that it's a life that's lived in community. A lot of those things there were about how you treat one another, how you look after one another, how you're to behave, how to resolve conflict, all of these kind of things. Because it's a life that's lived in community where unity matters so much. Unity within the body of Christ matters so, so much. And this is also clear in, in Philippians, in the passage that we've been reading. You see from chapter 1, 27, where we started today, all the way through to the end of chapter 2. I'm going to be covering that over the next three weeks. Paul's focus is on calling God's people to be united in love and to treat one another with humility. It's a key part of what he wants to present to the church. How you are with one another. Whether you're living in unity with one another is of such great importance to the degree where he's saying, let me tell you what it looks like. Let me tell you what you're called to. 
You want to know how to change our cities, our towns and our villages? Show them what Christian unity looks like. Show the world around us what Christian unity looks like. Paul longs to hear the churches standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's what he says. And that we are not to be frightened in anything by their opponents. How's your New Testament Greek? Is it good? Yeah, about as good as mine. But I have found out that the Greek word that Paul uses for striving is synathlio. Got that bit athleo in there? That's where we get the word athletics from. So when he's saying that we're to be striving, it's about it means to compete. It means to be, it's active. Striving, it's competing for something. But it also carries the connotation that it's not about doing it individually because the word means, synathlio means, it means to compete together. There's a sense of togetherness in there. It's not about doing it by yourself. So that word, it's, it's not an accident that he would have chosen that word. We're to press on, to strive together Side by side. Unity in the body of Christ is so important. That's going to be the focus of next week. Actually where we're looking at Jesus as our example of what it means. Or how we should treat one another. And how we should look after one another. Love one another. And that kind of thing. I'm going to be careful here Mike. I don't want to upset you because you're speaking. So, But John Piper. I read something that he'd written that I just thought was really helpful in terms of what it means for us to stand united in one spirit with one mind. He says, it's the unity of not counting myself more significant than you. It's the unity of not taking thought for my interest only, but also for your interest. To be one soul. As you stand beside another Christian, it's not to have the same tastes. It's not even to be totally agreed in all of your doctrine, but it's to look at him and to say, I'll die for you. My interests, your interests are my interest. I'm going to be to you like Christ was to me when he came down from heaven. It's a challenge. But that's what it means to stand side by side with someone. Because we treat them in the way that Jesus has treated us. Stand firm. Be united in the face of opposition because there will be opposition. There will be opposition. Don't know what opposition you might have faced in your life because of your faith or because of the witness that you've made for Jesus. And actually, I think the opposition that Christians face around the world is very different, depending on where you live. Some places it's illegal to be a Christian. If you live in those places, you're at very physical risk of being imprisoned or beaten. Some people around the world, even still today, are dying for their faith because of the opposition that they face. And while that might not be the experience that we have at this time in our nation, we still face opposition. You only need to look at the media. From my understanding, a lot of people would be happy if Christians just piped down and stopped talking. Because there's a sense that Christianity's had its time. It's not relevant anymore. Can't you just kind of get on board with the way the rest of the world is? Just conform to what's going on. There's opposition that comes. And it can take many forms. And it's something that we might experience even with friends and family. Because the way that we're living is not the way that they want to live. And it leads to tensions and, and difficulty. 
So there will be opposition that comes. But that's why Paul is saying here, yeah, but stand together. You don't do it by yourself. You're part of the body of Christ. So stand together so that when opposition comes, however it looks, you're standing as brothers and sisters together, working through this. Because actually, if you do that, and with the strength that God God gives you, you will be able to stand fearless in the face of whatever opposition comes your way. What opposition are you facing right now? Who in our church family is facing opposition? Who is suffering in some way because of their faith? It's not just enough to know who is or what's going on. The question I want to ask you this morning is what can you do to stand with them in the midst of it? Because we're called to stand together, to be united. You see, how you live demonstrates what or even who you live for. It's a sign. It tells a story. The way you live tells a story. 2 Corinthians 2, also written by Paul. In verse 14, he says, uh, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, we're a fragrance from death to death, but to the other, we're a fragrance from life to life. We're to offer our entire, our entire lives, we're to offer our entire lives as a response to what Jesus has done for us. We offer our entire lives to God as a response to what Jesus has done for us, for the sacrifice that he's made. In doing so, we're actually witnessing for Christ. People will encounter it when they look at us, when they look at the way that we live, when they hear the words we speak, when they look at the way the church is, when they see a church standing united together, they will encounter something of what it is that we believe and where our hope and where our trust is. And Paul speaks of it as being an aroma. It's like there's a fragrance that's released that people are aware of, that they get uh, some sort of a sense of who we are. It's a culture thing. Mike Betts, who heads up Relational Mission at the Leadership Conference in June of last year, he, picked, he was talking about this passage, and he says that we are to live lives that are godly, pure, kind, generous, everything that represents Christ well. That's how we're to live. That's what Paul's calling us to. And when you do so, it produces this fragrance, this aroma. And then Mike Betts, he went on to talk about smells, and he says that everyone will have an opinion on a smell. They divide opinion. To one person, a smell will be nice. To another, the same thing will not be good. They won't like it. But it does, everyone will have an opinion on it. You see, Paul says that when some people encounter your life, when they encounter the message of your life, they're going to reject it. But others will be attracted by it and they will accept it. What Mike Betts was saying is this, the challenge for us is that we mustn't leave anyone without an opinion. In the sense that we should live in such a way that it challenges and and kind of makes people have to make a decision I don't know if you've ever done this but I walked fairly recently I walked past a restaurant on my way home I can't remember which one it was and the smell that came out of it I thought to myself I want to go in there and I want to say whatever that smell is 
I want that. I don't know what it is, but can you just kind of turn that into some sort of food? Because that smell, that's what I want. Because it was such an amazing smell. I'm not sure whether they could do that or not. I've never tried it. I might do. But church, we let off a fragrance. Let's be real about this. Some people will encounter us and what they see they will not want to be a part of and they'll reject it. That's what Paul says. That's what's going to happen. But don't you want to be a church that when some people encounter us, when some people get a taste of that aroma, just like me at that, that restaurant, they say, do you know what? I'm not necessarily sure what it is, but whatever it is that I'm getting off of you guys, that's what I want. Because to some, that's what will happen. For Paul, living his life as an offering to God includes his suffering as well. It's a, it's a whole package deal for Paul. It includes facing opposition. That's why when he says that you're to stand firm, you're to not be frightened in the face of your opponents, it's a sign to them. It tells your story to them. It shows where your trust, your joy, your security, where your strength comes from. It's a sign. It's a clear proof. Sorry, when people see this, they witness a unity, a love, a joy and a faith that can only come from God. When you stand fearless and united in the face of opposition, it tells something to those who are opposing you. It's a sign, a clear proof of the one that, that, who you belong to. It's a sign to opponents. Let me go back to that because I rushed through that. It's a sign, it is a clear proof to you of who you belong to if you were able to stand firm in the face of opposition. It's a sign of your security and your salvation, of who you belong to. But it's also a sign to your opponents. And to those who see it, it's either the aroma of life or the aroma of death. They're going to have to do something with it when they see it. And opposition and suffering will come. I read somewhere this week, the gospel is good news, but it's never easy news. That was quite helpful for me to read. The gospel is good news, but it's never easy news because it requires a full sacrifice from each one of us. Is that not part of me? It's not most of my life apart from this bit and this bit. It's like actually it's every part of you. Paul's understanding of suffering is not that it is... It, Paul's understanding of suffering and opposition is not that it's a result of God's forgetfulness. Which perhaps is sometimes how we may feel. I know I've felt like that. Particularly when I feel like I'm in a real place of battle and struggle and opposition. I can think, God, what's going on here? Have you forgotten about me and what's going on here? Paul says, no, it's not that. He says that believing in Christ is something that's granted to us. Something that's been given to us through God's gift of faith. It's something that God has given to us. We don't struggle to, to take hold of that and believe that. God has granted us the faith to believe in Christ. But he also speaks of suffering in the same terms. It's what he says in that passage in Philippians. He says, your faith, what you believe in Christ has been granted to you. It's been given to you. But he also says that suffering has been granted to you. It's the same words that he uses. What he's saying to his readers, what he's saying to us is that living in Jesus means sharing in his sufferings as well as in his salvation. It's a, in a sense, it's a package deal. But Paul isn't writing as someone 
Or Paul isn't writing about something that he has no experience of. He's not writing as someone who's actually had a fairly comfortable life and not experienced much trouble. But he's saying to, you know, you can imagine him, it was the case, sitting fairly comfortably, but saying to the church, whoa, 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 just wait what you're going to face, the suffering and opposition coming your way. Paul's lived it. Paul knows. Paul's gone through it. Not only has Paul gone through it, he's in the midst of it when he's writing the letter to the Philippians. He understands what suffering is about because he's lived it. And he's experienced it. But if we go back to chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul is someone that can say, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul says, without the suffering that I've gone through, without the opposition that I've gone through, the gospel would not have advanced in the way that it has done. So Paul would see, something as suffer- would see suffering as something that actually, within suffering, there's opportunity to bring glory to Jesus. To magnify Jesus. For the gospel to advance. Remember what Paul's saying is that actually in the face of opposition. How you stand through that is a sign to those who oppose you about where your faith is. Romans chapter 5. It says therefore since we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's Paul's understanding about suffering. It's not that God's forgotten you. But actually God can use every season of our life. Every circumstance of our life. For good. You see this letter is full of joy. Paul is full of joy because he is more aware of who he is in Jesus. Than he is in all of the disappointments along the way. And even in those four verses. That is what Paul is calling the church to. That's what he's calling us to as well. We have the band up. We're going to head back into a time of worship. Just while they're meandering up. I'd like to read something for a guy called Michael Green. He undertook a study of the growth. Really, it was remarkable growth of the early church. He did a study on this. He says that neither the strategy nor the tactics of the first Christians were particularly remarkable. What was remarkable was their conviction, their passion, and their determination to act as Christ's embassy to a rebel world, whatever the consequences. This is why the church grew so rapidly. He says they might be slighted, laughed at, disenfranchised, robbed of their possessions, their homes, even their families, but this would not stop them. They might be reported to the authorities as dangerous atheists and required to sacrifice to the imperial gods, but they refused to comply. They were not prepared to deny Christ even in order to preserve their own lives, and in the manner of their dying, they made converts to their faith. That's why the church grew so remarkably. It was because of the way the believers stood firm. And stood united for what they believed. Because it shouts something to the world. It shouts something to the world. 
A church that stands in unity and fearlessness in the face of opposition. John Piper, who I mentioned earlier, do you remember when um, talking about how we, how we stand in face of opposition being a sign to those who oppose us? He says that written on that sign, so when we stand united and fearless, he says written on that sign, for your own soul to see and for your adversaries to see is this. On that sign it says, you are saved and they can't win. On that sign it says, you are saved. They can't win. Can we stand? We are going to respond by breaking bread together. In Acts, it says that the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and with prayers. So it's something that the body does when they gather together. It's something that we devote ourselves to. And in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians verse 10, it says that the cup of blessing that we bless, it's not a, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break... <laughs> Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So when we come to break bread, and we're going to do it in just a moment, Adam and the team are going to lead us in a song as we do that. But as we do so, Paul is saying when we we drink the bread, it's our participation in the blood of Christ. We remember that Jesus shed his blood for us. And in eating from the same loaf, it's a reminder to us that we're one body. We're one body. We're united together. This is not an individual thing that we do. It's not something for us to do in isolation. When we take communion, we're celebrating, remembering Jesus' sacrifice. But it's also a reminder to us that we've been brought into one body as well. The way we're going to do this, I'm going to bring the table out to the front I just think it would help just to get our eyes fixed on the fact that we are one body I just want to invite you during the next song to come up from the front and to partake of the bread and the wine and why not once you've done that get hold of someone and pray with them and give thanks together because it's not an individual thing that we're doing we're united in one body so Adam and the team I'm going to start, I'll bring the table over to the middle and then please do come and partake in the bread and the wine.